following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we are jumping right back into the book of John. For those of you who are were around last year, uh, before I left, we conveniently, not because I really planned it this way, but finished chapter 11, which really marks the first half of the book, and the Gospel of John really divides quite neatly into uh, two sections, the first 11 chapters and the next uh, 12 through 21. And um, somehow I worked that out to where I finished with the raising of Lazarus, and uh, this morning we're going to look at at uh, John chapter 12. Uh, as we as we prepare to do that, let me ask you a question: What uh, what can you do, or what can you give to show Jesus how much you love Him? Uh, you know, uh, some of you may kind of dread. How many of you actually will do raise a hand? How many of you kind of dread shopping for like birthday presents for your dad? Like, what do you get dad for Christmas? You know. The ugly tie he never wears, or the cologne, I don't know. What do you get, Dad? Well, what do you give Jesus? What can you do or give, or how can you show Jesus how much you love him? And that really assumes another question, that is, do you really love Jesus? Deep down in your heart, is there something in you that seeks and longs to express genuine love and affection to him? Well, that is an interesting question. There's, of course, a lot of ways we can answer that, and Hopefully, in many ways, every day, you find ways to show your love to Christ as a response to his love for you. But the story we're going to look at today in John chapter 12 is really just an extraordinary picture of somebody's extraordinary and extravagant love for Christ. And it really is one of my favorite books in the Holy Testament, favorite stories, uh, certainly one of the highlights in the book of John. And if you've been through us with the book of John so few people really seem to be getting who Jesus is. And Jesus is constantly trying to put himself out, and it just keeps going by people. And uh, it's kind of discouraging after a while. If you really study through the book of John, it gets kind of discouraging that nobody's getting Jesus. And yet, in this hinge point between the two halves of this book is this beautiful picture of somebody who really understood who Jesus was and responded with this amazing act of love and devotion. So let's read uh, John chapter 12, verse, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was there among those who ate, who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he really cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Um, 
just to give a little bit of background, uh, it says this event happened six days before the Passover. And really, to get all that's going on here, you need to back up a little bit to chapter 11. Of course, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, extraordinary event, huge. Guy's dead for four, four days. Jesus comes and raises him back to life. And it really sent shockwaves through the, the, the community there near Jerusalem. Bethany is located a couple miles from Jerusalem. And the word of this event uh, traveled all the way to the heart of Jerusalem, to the temple. And we read in the last part of chapter 11 that the, the Jewish leaders, especially the Pharisees, were outraged by this event. And it's interesting, as Jesus did this miracle, it says that some people believed, but others ran and uh, were kind of tattletales and told the Pharisees. And it's mind-boggling to me. Jesus raises this guy from the dead, and instead of them thinking, you know, maybe we've misjudged this Jesus guy. He's raising dead people. Maybe we should take another look at him. Uh, They don't do that. They decide and resolve all the more that they must kill him. Uh, in many ways, here you know, we talk about Jesus' trial at the end of the book, the end of the Gospels as his trial. But in many ways, Jesus was tried here in chapter 11. And they decided, um, in fact, let's read. We need to read this part because it's good. Um, someone to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together and said, What are we going to do? This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, soon everyone will believe him. Then the army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And they had decided that Jesus had become a significant, serious threat to their temple and their nation, their way of life. And their only option was to get rid of Jesus, to have him killed, to have him executed. And so the warrant was put out for his arrest. And not at the end of John did they try him. Really, at this point, they've decided and determined, made up their minds that Jesus must die. Uh, Jesus is aware of this. The word goes out. Jesus, you know, is not dumb. He realizes they are to get him. And Jesus is going to die. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. But he will not go on man's timetable. He is determined uh, to follow God's timetable. And so he uh, flees Jerusalem and goes out into a remote wilderness area called Ephraim. And he hangs out there until the time is right. And then chapter 12 starts, it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus comes back to Bethany. And uh, you can just feel the tension and drama as it becomes clear and it becomes aware that now is the time. And Jesus has come and he's really at the very doorstep of Jerusalem, two miles away. He is making his entrance six days before the Passover. And of course, have any of you read actually the whole Gospel of John? Well, what do you know? You know the end of the story then, right? You know where this is going. There's no surprise. Jesus is going to the cross. And the time has come. And now on God's timetable, he has come to become the, the Passover lamb himself. And so that's the setting and the backdrop for the story. And uh, at Bethany somebody we don't know who, a lot of people assume it's Lazarus, it it probably and most likely was not the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. One reason for that being that it says Lazarus was a guest. Uh, You know, most of the time when we have dinner at our house, we're not named on the guest list, right? Um, So there's some reasons why and how this syncs with other Gospels. It probably was not their house, but they were there. Lazarus was a guest of honor. Jesus was the guest of honor. 
And the dinner was this event really to honor and celebrate Jesus uh, as this one who had raised Lazarus. Uh, we don't know, John doesn't mention whose house it's in, but it was a big deal. A lot of the community, some probably very important people were there as they were honoring Jesus. It says that Martha was there serving, really fits her role throughout the other Gospels. She's, you know, this hardworking lady back in the kitchen cooking and slaving and serving up this great meal for the guests. But the real focus and uh, star of the story is, of course, Mary. And it says that Mary comes with this amazing gift, uh, this stone, alabaster stone jar with 12 ounces of very expensive perfume. Uh, spikenard, the, uh, it's a special plant that's grown. I, I understand, actually, I've seen it. Maybe some of you have, but it's grown in the northern parts of India, in the Himalaya regions. It was very expensive. And 12 ounces is a fair, I don't know in liters how much that is. I only know ounces. Uh, some of you that can do the metric conversion can tell me. But, you know, it's like, it's like a Pepsi, like, a, you know, a 12-ounce jar of Pepsi. Okay, imagine a jug of perfume that size. Now, some of you high school guys, have you, have you guys bought, bought perfume yet for your girlfriend? You better start saving up, okay? Because <laughs> I'm telling you, this stuff is expensive. Uh, I, on, at times and on occasions, have bought, you know, saved up my allowance for many months and bought Denise perfume, I've never bought 12 ounces. That's like a jug. You know, you'd have to take out like a loan. You have to mortgage your house for 12 ounces. You know, I know usually it's like you, know, you get an ounce and a half little thing, about 12 drops, you know, it's 60 bucks. It's like use it sparingly, dear, because this has got to last you a long time, right? Here's 12 ounces. And this, and this is not just 12 ounces of like, you know, Calvin Klein or Obsession, no cheap stuff like that, Okay. This stuff, it says, is worth a year's wages. A year's wages. Kind of what you make in a year, but that's some expensive perfume. Okay, what is she doing with this kind of stuff? Well, it was certainly a priceless family treasure. We don't know, I don't say how she got it, if it had been passed down from generation to generation, uh, if it had been some kind of inheritance. We don't know how she got it, but certainly... This treasure was incredibly valuable. Okay, a year's wages. Okay, uh, and, and a quantity that was really kind of over the top for perfume. If you know anything about perfume, a little goes a long way. 12 ounces, that's a lot. Not only that, but this particular kind of perfume, I, I'm told I understand from commentaries, the reason it was kept in a stone jar is it was kind of a one-time use deal. Once it was exposed to the air, they didn't have good sealed bottles and things like we have now, no glass jars like we have with good tight lids. Once it was open and exposed to the air, it immediately began to lose its scent, and within a few days, it was no good. So it was the kind of thing, imagine this. A perfume that costs a year's wages, you get to use it once, and then it's over. You break the, it doesn't have a lid, you break, it says literally that she broke the jar, this little stone jar, and you pour it out, and there goes a year's wages. Okay? Are you getting the picture of the value of this stuff? This treasure. It was most likely, it doesn't say this, but most likely it was the most valuable treasure thing that Mary had in her possession. There's probably nothing that, that she owned or that belonged to her that, was, that could compare to the worth and value of this treasure. Uh, again, you know, you wonder, what was she doing? What do you do with 
the stuff? Well, it was used for a couple of purposes. It was used for burial. Oftentimes they would take this and anoint a, a person's body with it. It's a little interesting that her brother had just died, just you know, a few weeks before this, and she didn't use it on her brother. Okay, she still has it. So you know, I'm sure she obviously she loved her brother a lot. She didn't love him that much. Okay. It was probably a good thing because he, he only was dead for four days. What a waste that would have been. It's like, you know, you got to die some more because, you know, you, we didn't get the monies for that of this perfume. Um, this is a valuable stuff. Didn't even use it on her brother. Um, some commentators speculate that for a woman like her, she was, uh, from all indications, she was single and not married, that she may have been saving this as a dowry for her wedding. That this represented, and certainly it was a kind of treasure that was of such value and significance that it certainly represented security for her future, whether as a, a dowry for a wedding or simply as a, a kind of a bank account, a savings account, something she could hang on to so that if things got rough in her future, there was, there was something that could take care of her. There was something she could fall back on. All right? You see what this represents. Hey, this gift is not just something she randomly went into her house and got, oh, I'd like to do something for Jesus. Oh, I'll give him some perfume. This was something she was of extreme significance to her. And when you consider what this meant, for her to take this and pour it out on Jesus was huge. And it says that she took this vial of very, very expensive stuff, in many ways representing her future representing the greatest treasure of her life. And she brought it into this public room where this banquet was going on, and she breaks it open, and she pours it out over Jesus. It says in John that she pours it out over his feet. Uh, the other Gospels report that she poured it on his head. It was such a large quantity that most likely she anointed his head, hands, and feet. Uh, but John highlights anointing the feet because it's such a great picture of how she saw herself in relationship to Christ. She poured out this gift of extreme love, extreme expense, this extravagant gift, to show her deep love and affection for Christ. And in John, we see her placing herself at his feet, at Jesus' feet. Not coming alongside as some kind of equal or like, hey, bud, you know, but as one who saw herself very unworthy of Jesus. Uh, this great act of humility, of putting herself at the feet of Jesus as a servant, as one unworthy of this even gift of love that she was about to give. And she pours it out on Jesus' feet. And then in this beautiful picture of just intimacy and the personal touch of it all, it says that she wipes it off with her hair. Um, just close, personal connecting with Jesus. Why did she do that? You know, the people in the room were taken off guard by it. They probably thought, man, this lady's weird. Why did she do that? Well, clearly there's only one explanation for this. Because she so deeply loved Jesus as a, as a mark and a symbol of her deep devotion and affection for Christ. She loved Jesus. And she wanted at this moment in time to show Jesus the depth and extent of her love. Uh, and so she found the most valuable, priceless thing she had, 
And she poured it out for Jesus. Um, This is such a great picture of really how love works and what love is. And really what it means for us to love Jesus. You know, it's interesting. Jesus never asked for this kind of gift. You know, in all of Jesus' teachings, uh, he never said, you know, gave this kind of instruction that people who were his real disciples would take their most expensive perfume and pour it on his feet, right? Uh, when she did this, he didn't turn to the disciples and go, why don't you guys do this for me, right? Okay, because love doesn't work that way. This was a free gift given from her heart as an expression of love and devotion. There's some great pictures of this in Scripture. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, going back in the Old Testament to the time of David. If you remember, during the time when David was still at war with Saul, he had not been uh, yet appointed as king. He had been anointed but not taken the throne over Israel, and Saul was trying to kill him. There was one time when he and his men were camped near Saul's army, and Saul's army was camped around this well. And David, looking down on the camp and looking down on the well and remembering the well and how sweet its water was, he said to his men, Oh, wow, I would love to taste and drink the, well, the water of that well. Remember that story? And so in the middle of the night, what do his buddies do? Out of their love and devotion for David, because they love him as their leader, they sneak down into this camp, very dangerous, and in the middle of all these soldiers, they dip down into this well, they get a glass of water, and they bring it back to David. And because of their love and devotion and sacrificing their own lives to get it, they give David this gift. It's just water, but what a cup of water it was. To know they had done it uh, of such love and and devotion. And of course, David is so moved by it, he wouldn't even drink it. He dumps it out on the ground. It's like, oh man, what's with that? Right? But he's so moved, it's like, I'm not worthy of such a gift of love. Right? Well, that's what love is. Right? Love is doing something kind of over the top, not because you have to, because it's demanded or, or you feel obligated to, but simply to say, I love and appreciate you so much that I want you to have this. Uh, I had a similar thing happen, not quite on the same scale, but when I was uh, about 15 years old, I had gone on a backpack trip at this Bible camp. And uh, I was just this kind of young kid and loved backpacking and the leader of this trip was a, a man who I came to grow and love a great deal. And I went on several of these trips over a period of a couple of years. Um, it's just a very, for me at that time in my life, kind of a lifesaver. Uh, it took great interest in me, took great attention and time, and certainly really loved me as this, as this 15-year-old kid. And uh, my response to that was to really love him back deeply. And uh, I just really cared a great deal for this guy. So one day, uh, he was the backpack leader, but he was kind of lazy. He was older. He wore out easy. The altitude got to him. I don't know. But uh, So us kids would go off climbing and exploring mountains. And one day, my friends and I climbed to the top of this mountain, and on top was this little restaurant. And he had just told the story about David and his men and the cup of water. So we thought, we're going to show him how much we love him. And we bought him a donut. We had, like, hiked like eight miles for this donut and brought it back to him and gave him this donut because we wanted to show him how much we appreciated him. He ate the donut, (laughs) which was good, actually. I was glad he did. (laughs) That's what love is, okay? When we love somebody, our spouse, our wife, you know, we love them. We 
We give freely and sometimes sacrificially, almost always a gift that costs us something personally, to communicate to that person, you are special to me, you mean a great deal to me, and I want to show that value I have in you by giving you a special gift that costs me. I give it freely. Now, if you want to wreck that, if you want to wreck that in your relationship, you know, turn those into demands and expectations. You know, I want chocolate. This would be great. I mean, imagine this. Uh, we'll say, uh, we'll pick on a guy. He says, I want chocolate. I want chocolate. If you really love me, you'll give me chocolate. And so the wife brings him chocolate, and he says, well, it's about time you gave me chocolate. Well, you know, is that love? Well, the crazy thing is it kind of robs love, because even if this person wanted to do this as an expression of love, when you put a demand on it, when you give it, it's not really giving love. It's just giving payment of something that's owed or expected. I love this picture because here is Mary giving something extravagant and extreme out of the goodness and free will of her heart because she just loves Jesus. She loves him to the very core of her being. And words cannot begin to express what this picture does of her love and of devotion and affection for Christ. That picture is all you need to know about her heart and her deep care and love for Christ. That picture really says it all. Well, that's how we love Jesus. Um, but it's interesting when you compare this with some of the stories around it. I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to, and kind of look at briefly at how this picture contrasts with what surrounds it. And let's look at a little bit at the verses right before this. The high priests who have just found out that Jesus is winning all this crowd and their response is to do what? They say, look, we're going to lose our temple and our nation if we don't do something about Jesus. Uh, here's some guys, and it's kind of ironic. Whose temple is this? I thought it was God's temple. But all of a sudden now it's my temple and my nation. Whose nation was this supposed to be? God's holy nation? I kind of lost that part. Now it's our nation, it's our temple, and Jesus is going to mess this up. I'm really reminded about how we are by nature pack rats. You know what a pack rat is? A pack rat is somebody who gets stuff and stores it. I was just back, you know, in the States, in America, and um, I don't know how it is in the country where you come from, but in America, people, like, have lots of stuff, and they keep it all, right? And they have, they build these large buildings with little tiny rooms and doors to keep their stuff, called storage units. And they spend lots of money to store stuff that's only worth half of what they spend to store it, actually, Right? And uh, I'm, not, I'm not exempt from this. When we were there, we had to go through stuff we have stored. And we have all this stuff. And we're going through it, trying to decide what we have to keep. And we couldn't just get rid of it all. Even though it's all really kind of worthless, uh, we couldn't part with it because it's our stuff. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's kind of the nature. It's the way we are. And it's not wrong. Um, certainly, the reason Mary had something to give was because she hung on to her stuff. She had this treasure that she kept. That's not all wrong or all bad. And it certainly is kind of our nature to keep things, to have things. Very few of us could be a St. Francis of Assisi. You know, St. Francis of Assisi came from a very wealthy family. We kind of had it with all that. And he literally took the shirt off his back, threw it down, walked out with just his T-shirt on, out into the snow, and renounced stuff. And from that day on, he possessed nothing. 
That was pretty cool. Pretty rare, okay? Most of us don't and don't need to live there. Uh, it's interesting, you, you go around, uh, even homeless people, people who don't have a home, have stuff. They got their little shopping cart. There's one of these guys around Ching Mai, I see him all the time. He's, he's by my office, he's got a little shopping cart full of junk, trash, but it's his stuff, right? We are that way by nature. And there's nothing wrong with that, except when we start loving that stuff more than we love Jesus. And when that happens, there becomes a great conflict of our affection. And that's what happened with the leaders of Israel. Jesus comes on the scene, and he begins to threaten their stuff, namely their temple and their nation. It probably went a lot farther than that. They were threatened by Jesus messing up their lifestyle and their position and their status and their wealth and their class. And they saw Jesus threatening all that stuff. And it became a problem because they loved that stuff so much that they would choose it over Jesus. And the reality is that when things in our life start competing for our attention, we're going to have a conflict between what we do with Jesus and what we do with these things in our life. And those things will wage war, and at some point, we will and must make a choice. Am I going to love this stuff more, or am I going to love Jesus? You can have all the stuff in the world, but when that stuff starts to compete for your love and affection for Christ, you will have problems. And ultimately, either that stuff has to be pushed aside, or Jesus will be pushed aside. And we'll decide that he can stay on the sidelines, but we're going to keep and hang on to our stuff. Uh, stuff comes in all kinds of shapes and forms and sizes. It's not just material things, although it is material things. We hold on to our treasures, our physical material possessions. Uh, we hold on to the security that money brings. We may hold on to certain kinds of lifestyles and believe that those things are kind of like a God-given right. And at some point, we've got to wrestle with the fact, are we loving these things more than Christ? Or are we willing to offer up some of these most precious treasures in a free act of love and devotion to Jesus? Obviously, the religious leaders in Jesus' day could not make that choice. And in the end, they killed Jesus. They threw away and rejected the one who came to love and die for them. What an incredible tragedy that in seeking to keep and gain their lives, in the end, they lost it, didn't they? And not only did they lose their life, but they lost their temple and they lost their nation. And in the end, they had nothing. So we've got to be very careful that we guard those things that we possess, they don't start to possess us. But I'm guessing that for a lot of us, we kind of know that, we're, we're aware of that. Maybe I would hope that for most of us, it's just a minor problem that we deal with, keeping those things in perspective. But there's something else in this story that's much more of a threat, I think, for us, especially us sitting in this room. And it really is the response of Judas Iscariot. And, uh, you know, she pours out this extravagant gift of love. And Judas, and, and it's real important that when we compare this with the other Gospels, this was not just Judas. Okay, John, throughout the Gospel, really wants everybody to know that Judas is the bad guy. So every chance he gets, he really spotlights Judas in his 
role as the, as the bad guy. But the reality is that this was actually the response of all the disciples. Their response was what? Oh, what a wonderful picture of love. Look at how she loves Jesus. Is that what they said? I mean, they were just crying. Oh, I'm so touched. <laughs> is that what they were doing? No. They were going, what are you doing? What a waste. Just think of how that would benefit our ministry. Right? Just think how that would profit what we're trying to do to save the world. For us, I think a lot more serious danger is that we get so caught up in giving our life to a good cause. We get so caught up in doing ministry and being involved in ministry. You know, we're here, many of you, because you are actively involved in big stuff to save the world, to help poor people, to feed the hungry, to help orphans, to bring the gospel to the lost, to do ministry. All of us, whether we do it as a vocation or not, all of us are called to be involved in ministry through the body of Christ, where we work, where we live, in our families, to be doing ministry. Certainly, uh, throughout Old Testament and New, we are called to be very careful to give attention and not overlook the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the orphan and the widow. Certainly, Scripture places a very high priority on that. But there's an incredible danger of falling into the place where Judas is and actually the other disciples. Where ministry overshadows Jesus. That sounds kind of weird and impossible, but the reality is it happens all the time. So easy, because it seems like such a good thing. You know, I'm here serving, I'm here serving God. I'm here saving the world, I'm here helping people. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in all this huge world of stuff and problems and what we're going to do and how we're going to fix things, that that becomes the love of our life. That becomes the passion that drives and moves us. That becomes the thing that consumes our time and attention. So that everything becomes about the ministry. Everything becomes, as Judas said, oh, what that could have done to help the poor. What that could be done for ministry. And the sad reality is that far too many people are sacrificing their life and pouring out their life for ministry and not necessarily for Jesus. And that's a terrible place to be. And I would warn you, if you're there, put on the brakes, you know, uh, put down the anchor and start doing some serious rearranging in your life. See, Judas had his priorities, his motives, turned completely upside down and backwards. Was it wrong to be concerned about the poor? Well, of course not. Was it a bad thing for him to be concerned about ministry? Well, of course not. But the problem is, he was operating without any love for Jesus. And the end result, it says, it says this, you know, in, in, in John, making sure everybody knows he's the bad guy, Talks, you know, says not that, not that Judas was concerned about the poor. He actually was a thief who was stealing money for himself. And you can say, oh, I'm doing ministry, but I'm not a thief. I'm not stealing. My heart is genuinely for poor people. But here's the deal. If you do ministry and your concern is to save the world and help people and do all that, and you do that 
without loving Jesus first, what happens is eventually it does become self-serving and you are a thief. You do it simply to satisfy yourself. And one of two things will happen. Number one, which most often happens, things don't go well. Jesus says, you know, leave her alone. She did this preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you. If you put ministry first and you live and you, this becomes the passion and love of your life, this is what's going to happen. You're going to pour your life sacrificing and defeating the poor and taking care of the orphans and saving people. And you may see some things happen, but overwhelmingly, there's still going to be poor people. And the truth is, you're going to die or burn out or move on, and there's still going to be poor people. You can't fix them all. You can't save them all. And time and time again, what happens is you burn out, and you get discouraged, and you give up. Because that cannot fuel and sustain you very long. Or even worse, what happens is you become very successful. Maybe because of your gifts and talents, you see big things happen, and you see good things happen, and uh, you see great movements happen. And what happens? You become arrogant and pride and conceited, and you live on that stuff. And it feeds you, and it becomes the thing that you live for. We've all seen it happen. People who uh, are in ministry because of what it gives them. You're a thief. You're a robber. You're simply doing it for what it gains you personally. And uh, we fall into the shoes of Judas. The only way to protect that, the only way to avoid that, the only way to keep those motives pure and right and true is to love Jesus first. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't attack Judas on the grounds of it being a thief. He attacks him on the basis of having his, his priorities, his motives turned upside down. He says, you'll always have the poor, you'll always have the needy, but right now you have the chance to love me in a unique and special way. And that is more important. Jesus says, loving me must come first. And everything else must follow out of that heart of love and compassion. You know, why are you here? Are you here ultimately because you love Jesus and you want every act of service to be a gift of love and devotion to him? If you're not, you really need to examine where you're at because you're headed to a road of destruction. It won't work. We must love Jesus first. And it's the only thing that will really sustain us in ministry. Uh, you know, to be honest, I'll shoot very straight with you. When I was in America, when I was in the United States, uh, there was a big part of me that did not want to come back here. And, uh, you know, I like, the, I, like, I like life there. Like, people drive normal and sane. Uh, you know, there's just, there's just this incredible wealth and stuff. Uh, life is in some ways easier. There's beautiful Colorado mountains that I just love. And I tried to get them in my suitcase. They wouldn't fit. Um, there's a lot of things about living in our home countries that's very attractive and appealing. Uh, you know, I was in these big, huge churches with staffs of se- 75 to 100 people on staff. We're not talking members. We're talking about this. I'm going, make me a janitor there. You know, I'll just be a janitor. I'll just be here. I just, wow. Like they have ministry of like greeting. They have a greeting pastor, full-time paid, you know. It's like, I want that job. Just focus on you know the front door of the church. It's great. Wow. 
And I must be, I will confess, there was a lot of, I was going, man, I think I'll just stay here. And you know, there's a temptation to say, and, and, and the thought went through my mind, and there's a temp, the temptation to think, no, millions of people are dying without Christ in Thailand. I've got to go back and save Thailand. Ministry is calling me there. And there's needs, and there's the children's home, and there's the church, CCF, and there's the people there, and there's all these needs, and I've got to go minister and serve God there. That would be the wrong reason to come back. That would be the wrong reason. And if I were to do that, I would not last very long. But thankfully, God in his grace said, No, Tim, you have the option, as Mary did, to freely of your own choice and your own will, show your love to me through service. You can love me by doing this, but you've got to love me first. And you must do it simply as an act of love and devotion to me. And so I'm trying to do that. And I came back. Because I love you, but I love Jesus more, okay? Most days. And I'm not perfect. I'm working on it. One more, one more contrast, real quick. Uh, following this story is the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, the next day, actually. He has his dinner on probably Saturday night, the next morning, Sunday morning. He enters Jerusalem, the week of the Passover, the Passion Week. Word of his coming spreads through the city, and literally tens of thousands of people line this, the two-mile road from Bethany to Jerusalem. Tens of thousands. And they do what? Well, they hail Jesus. They sing praises to him. Right? And, uh, you know, if you've ever been in a big worship event like this, I remember back when the Promise Keeper thing was really big, I was at several Promise Keeper events, and you got these tens of thousands of people gathered in a stadium singing praises to Jesus. I'll tell you, there's, there's no atheist who would not go away from that experience going, wow, because there is something about the energy of that. You know, 10,000 people, 20, 30, 40,000 people singing and just excited and enthused, it stirs you and moves you in a powerful way. And I'm sure this crowd went away feeling deeply moved and stirred. It was huge. It was this huge parade. And they were singing powerful praises to Jesus. But what did it mean? Well, apparently not much, because the same crowd, a few days later, was calling for his death. Uh, These praises didn't go very far, because it didn't really cost them anything. You know, it's, it's, we've got to be very careful. And I'm going to be very careful how I say this. I don't want to be misunderstood. But um, so many churches and so many Christians think that if they show up on Sunday morning, they're in this crowd, and there's this great experience of loud band and the music's playing and everybody's singing and it's, like, powerful, that that's loving Jesus. Because I was moved by this music, by this worship experience. Well, that's not loving Jesus, Okay. That is not loving Jesus. Now, a person who comes into a service like that who, like Mary, does love Jesus and has given gifts of love to him, have poured out their life to him in special acts of devotion and affection. For those people, those songs and those words will have incredible meaning and depth and power. It will move and stir in their hearts, but not just because it's a crowd, not because the band's good, not because we know the songs and it's cool, but because we love Jesus already. 
Too many people come to church wanting an experience. And when they leave without getting that experience, they're disappointed. And they think, well, that's not a very good church. And that wasn't a very good worship service. And you're missing the point. We, you know, like the song, we'll, I'll give you more than a song. Uh, for a song is, in itself is not what you have required. Jesus wants our worship, but that doesn't mean we just show up and sing a song to him. Now, certainly... We do show up and we do sing songs to Him. And we should do that because we are people who are already in love with Him. And it is the deep expression of our heart. But it doesn't start there. It has to start before we get here. Because we've loved Him. You know, the the truth is, and one of the reasons this crowd at the, at the triumphal entry, at this big parade, could not love Jesus is simply that they didn't know him. You can't really love one who you don't know. And the truth and the reality is that Mary could love Jesus in a very powerful and deep way because she had come to know who Jesus was and had experienced his love in her life in a very powerful and incredible way. We see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking him in, loving him. John chapter 11, she had seen and seen and grasped an incredible miracle of God's grace in her life through the resurrection of her brother. And it was in response to those things that she could come and pour out her love and affection to Jesus. Uh, you can't muster up love for God. You can't go out here and say... Well, that's just that was a good sermon. I'm going to go look. I'm going to go love Jesus. I'm going to do that. Well, I hope you're inspired to do that. I hope you're charged up and you want to love Jesus more. But you can't do it if you don't know him. If you are not personally encountering and experiencing his his move of love in your life. The first place to start is to get to know him. Really get to know him and spend time in his presence. And come to understand the outpouring of his love and grace in your life. His love has to come first. His love is supreme and preeminent. Uh, He has to love us first. We have to know and understand that. And then as his love fills us up, we have something to offer back to him in loving him. Mary could love Jesus because she had received this incredible outpouring of his love in her life. And because of that, she could respond in love. Well, assuming that you are coming to know Jesus and he, you're coming to experience and encounter his love in your life, the real question is, what do you have that you can give him? Now, what is the treasure in your life that you could offer to him? Now, the cool thing is Jesus doesn't demand or obligate us to anything. Again, love has to be a free gift of our free will that we do simply because we want to. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't want us to give him everything. Well, he may ask some of you to do that, but most likely not. It's just like, you know, I can give special gifts to my wife. She really doesn't want everything of mine. You know, I can't go to her, dear, you know, these are my my favorite tennis shoes. They're a little worn out because I put like too many miles on them, but I want you to have these tennis shoes because I love you. She's not really going to be very impressed, right? Uh, There's some things Jesus, you know, It's not going to be that excited about. But what is the treasure of your life? 
What is it right now that you are holding on to that is your alabaster box of priceless perfume? That honestly you would really be a gift of great love if you were to give it to him. What is that for you? It may not just be things. It may be, it may be a lifestyle. Maybe you're living a lifestyle and you're holding on to that lifestyle. And, and, and God's not telling you to give that up, but you can say, God, I'm going to live at a different level of lifestyle. I'm going to step it down a few notches because I love you. Maybe it's uh, your ministry. Maybe you need to say, God, this ministry is a good thing. It's been successful. It's been great, but I want to give it to you. I want you to be the one who holds it. Maybe it is your service. Maybe you've been serving, trying to prove something. You need to back off and say, God, I want to give you my service as as an expression of my love freely and willingly because I love you. Not because I'm going to save the world or do great things. It's going to make me look good so I can write cool stuff in my prayer letters. Because I love you. What is the thing that you hold? One last thought. And this really doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from my wild imagination, so you can take it with a grain of salt. But think about this. Um, Jesus said, you know, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It's amazing. Mary, uh, you know, Jesus had been gone in the wilderness. She didn't know this, but uh, just a few days later, Jesus was going to, going to die, going to be on the cross. The window of opportunity for her was very, very short. Six days. Thankfully, she didn't put it off. Thankfully, she stepped forward and she gave this gift when the opportunity was there. I want you to think about something. We live in a very, this, this thing called life, this time when we're here on earth, is a very rare and unique opportunity for us to love God in a special way. What I mean by that is simply this. Someday you and I will all die, and we will all stand before God, and if we put our faith and trust in Christ, we're truly a follower of him, we will stand in heaven before God, absolutely, totally stripped of everything. And thankfully, we won't be totally naked because it says we'll be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Praise God for that. Okay? But... We take nothing with us. All the stuff you're holding on to, all the stuff you have, your ministry, your house, everything gets left here. And when you stand before Jesus someday, you stand there totally with just you and the right clothes in the righteousness of Christ. Right? And at that point, we will be able to love Jesus in a, in a more, more perfect way. And we'll have this relationship with him. We'll see him face to face. Well, let me ask you that. On that day, what will you give Jesus? Well, you're not going to give him anything because you won't have anything. It's amazing to me that during this time on earth, he has given us stuff, all kinds of stuff. And he has given us the free will for this short period to either love him with it or keep it for ourselves. For the whole rest of eternity, we will not have the opportunity, like we do today, to give a gift of love to Jesus like we can. Now, I don't know, in heaven, maybe we can give other things. I don't know, maybe we can get a job and save up. I don't know. It's not going to be the same there, though. Like, when the streets are made with gold, really, what are you going to give God? You know? Look, I found some gold. Here, it's yours. (laughs) Thanks. You know? 
And it's not that Jesus need you know it's not that Jesus needed this perfume. Uh, it's not that you know he was going, gee, I stink. I wish somebody would pour his perfume on me. He didn't need it. God doesn't need our gifts. But what an incredible period that today, right now, you have the opportunity to love Jesus in a way you will not have for the rest of eternity. To give him back a little bit of what he's given you. And to show it as an expression of your love and affection and devotion. And the reality is when you get to heaven, you know, the only thing that's really going to come with you is the aroma of what you have poured out on him. I love this picture. It says that the room was filled with the, with the aroma of this perfume. And uh, she wiped her hair. You know, she went out from that place. She was covered with this sweet aroma of this perfume. Not only did it anoint Jesus, but it changed her. And she was smelling of this stuff. And I believe that when we go into heaven, we will be perfumed with the aroma of that stuff that we have given to Jesus here on this earth. Some of you are going to need, you know, you're not going to smell very good. Some of us are not going to smell very good unless we freely give to Jesus those treasures of our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for your incredible love for us. As Mary anointed you for your burial, the gift that you were about to give was infinitely greater and more valuable. And by comparison, her small gift was, 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 was nothing compared to your gift. And yet it was a gift that blessed your heart that was a sweet aroma to you that brought joy and delight as this woman expressed her affection and love for you. Father, what an amazing thing that today, while we're here on this earth, we have this incredible opportunity to give you good gifts of our time and our service, of our things, of our treasures. Lord, I pray that you would just ignite in us an incredible love for you, that we would give because we want to, because it's the deep longing of our heart to express to you our love and affection. And Father, even as we sing these songs, we pray that they would be a gift. Lord, that... Uh, that it would cost us something as we give a piece of our heart, our soul to you in worship, as we lay down our lives at your feet and say, Lord Jesus, take, take me and use me. Uh, take me as, as Mary did, broken before your feet, humbled before you. But prepare us even now as we come to worship you impart our gifts to you in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.